looking at the second plague. We're studying through this book. If you're new to us, we're studying through this book of Exodus, which is the story of God's redemption of His people, the liberation of His people from slavery in Egypt. And God is giving Pharaoh and the Egyptians time to repent. That's what these plagues are about. It's also about demonstrating the superiority of the good news of the gospel, the good news of freedom ultimately in Jesus Christ, to whom this is predicting, over against the bad news of choosing self-salvation. Our first catechism question and answer, we're studying the catechism, which is a brief restatement of essential doctrines. We study that in the evening. And the first question and answer of the catechism is, what is man's or man and woman's primary purpose? What is the purpose we are uh, put here and for which we're kept alive? Man's primary purpose, the answer is, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You're used to the glorifying part. You know that we're here to glorify God. But do you know that the gospel also means that God's good news enables us to enjoy Him? Life is to be joyful, even in the midst of sorrow. And so these plagues demonstrate what happens when you choose self-salvation over the gospel. It's not joyful Heaps of stinking frogs, not joyful. And that's what's encountered in the second plague. We begin in chapter 7, verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Just a brief comment. God gave seven days to Pharaoh to repent. Seven days to the Egyptians to recover from the plague of the Nile turning to blood. God does not judge forever. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1 of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, 
be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died. They died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord. And open our hearts, do not let them be hardened to the sweetness and the beauty and the joy of the gospel. O Lord, tune our hearts and our ears and our eyes that we might understand clearly that yours is the way of life and ours, our choices, they're the way of death. Oh, Lord, cause our lives to be the aroma of life and not the aroma of death. Fall on us mightily by your Spirit, by your word and sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. One of the most precious memories of my life, one of the thin places between heaven and earth is the memory of watching the movie A Beautiful Mind with my father at a fishing cabin at Real Foot. Beautiful Mind is a story of John Forbes Nash Jr., the brilliant mathematician of Princeton who invented game theory. Brilliant beyond imagination, beyond description, but plagued by a mental illness, paranoid schizophrenia. For many years he battled that mental illness, for all of his life he battled it, but he battled it hopelessly for much of his life. The drugs, the medications in those days were almost entirely ineffective and shock therapy treatments nearly killed him. He lost his friends and family, his life was a tragedy, and a beautiful mind is mostly the accurate story of that life. The only thing that worked for John Forbes Nash in the end, he was a man who imagined himself to be the savior of, the, of America in the Cold War. He was, he was defending America against, with the National Security Administration, so he thought. He had a, he had a dear little child. He, he had a good friend. They were all imaginary. Got him into lots of trouble and danger, as you can imagine. But the only thing that could save him, the only thing that enabled him to go on with his career as a, as a professor and to live really a beautiful life, the only thing was the love of friends. A handful of friends he trusted and he knew were real and would take him by the arm, he would take them by the arm. And every new person he encountered, he would ask his friend, is this person real? 
And if she or he answered yes, then he would go on talking to him. And is this situation real? He had to begin his day. Every day he had to find that trustworthy friend if life was going to be beautiful, if his mind was going to be beautiful. There were times, I'm sure, he was disappointed, maybe even angry with this friend who disavowed him of, of some perception that he really welcomed, that he thought was dignifying, he thought was fun, he thought a person that was engaging, and that person had to say, no, this situation is not real, that person is not real. I'm sure he was angry with that person at times, but that person had to love him enough to venture his, his anger, love him enough to lead him into life, into reality. That's the real meaning of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and do not make an image to any other god. It is not because God says, you know, if you get to worshiping those other gods, you might like them more than me, and you'll you'll leave me. That's not it at all. Here the, the plague demonstrates what happens when you allow anyone else in your life before God, anything before God. You must take Him first. There must be no other God before Him. And when He is first in your life, especially as He's revealed to you in Jesus Christ, when He's first in your life, life becomes beautiful. You glorify God, He glorifies you, and you enjoy Him forever. It's the simple points, just these two simple points. What is it, what is required, what is necessary for a beautiful, joyful life? It is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. To glorify Him is the first point. It comes to us in verses 1 to 7, <clears throat> and one thing I need to point out to you is that the word plague that we use so freely in characterizing all of these ten signs, the word plague is only attached, is only applied to three of these disasters. It's only to the frogs and uh, only to uh, the darkness and then to the plague of death. And plague means to strike, to strike a blow. And so it's appropriate to, to be used in in this situation, and it's, a, it's appropriate to think of, of these ten signs as blows to the Egyptians, but it would be wrong to, uh, to, to, to say that each one of these was an active strike by God. Now, it is all superintended by God, but what I mean is this, that what these people are doing, what Pharaoh is really doing is, is or what's happening is Pharaoh is receiving what he asks for. Yes, God is the one who sends these disasters. But his judgment, and this is most often the case with his judgment, is just to give us what we ask for. That's the point in, in Romans 1. And God says those who perpetually turn their back on Jesus Christ and and perpetually ask for their own way, God eventually gives them over. 
And that's what's happening here. It's what happened in the first plague. God gave them what they asked for. They had, they had false gods attached to each of these, these, these signs that God, that God gives. God, each of these is a strategic strike against a specific God of Egypt. So the, the first, the, 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 the plague of blood, when he turns the Nile into blood, that, the, the, the Nile was their life. It was the source of their irrigation. It was the source of their economy. And they had a God that they had attached to that, or at least a couple of gods. One was Hapi, H-A-P-I. And the one that they said brought fertility to the land when the Nile flooded it. And then there was the god Kanum, who was the guardian god of the Nile. And that's the one they said, that's the one they worshipped. That's the one Pharaoh was going down to have his devotions with when he was at the water's edge. These are the ones they're worshipping. And they're saying to these gods, we thank you that you're bringing life to our, to our land. And we thank you that you are preserving the Nile for us. And God says, because you've put another god before me. Because you think somebody else gives you this life. I have to, in severe mercy, turn you from that. And he turns the water to blood. Well, the next God in question, the next God in focus is Heket, H-E-K-H-E-T, Heket. Heket was a goddess. She was the wife of Kanum, the so-called guardian god of the Nile. And Heket was a lovely princess with the head of a frog. And they thought they, she was the goddess of fertility, human fertility. The women of Egypt pled with Heket to give them children, pled with Heket to preserve their children like she had to preserve the frogs from the crocodiles in the Nile, as if she really did. Heket was a frog. They worshipped a frog. And they said, from you, great Heket, the great frog, we get our children. Some of you think you have your children, you're hopping children from a frog, but that's not true. Your, 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 frog, your, your children are a gift from God. They thought that their gifts were, their children were gifts from a frog. And so God says, you want a frog? I'll give you a frog. The simple point is that false worship dehumanizes that's the, that's the point of the commandments. The commandments are given to us not just to keep us in, in line. The commandments are given to us so that we would thrive. You, you, you understand that obviously from some commandments. You, you know that the opposite of, of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And Well, that's obviously dehumanizing to kill someone. God wants to prosper life. And, and adultery never works out well for anybody. And, and honoring father and mother, that's to, to, to humanize and to honor parents. And it results in safety and joy for yourself. And coveting only reduces somebody else to an object. And the same is true for the first four commandments. When you put other gods before God, it dehumanizes you. It's not that God needs your worship. It's that God causes you to thrive when he's first in your life. What's the opposite of that? It is to worship a frog. It is to worship something that is far less than 
a human being. And we see it in our own culture. When we worship anyone besides the Lord Jesus Christ, when we worship anyone besides God who has made us in His image, He has crafted us ever so carefully into His image. When we worship anyone, anything besides Him, it only makes us less human. We see it in the way we treat children. When we, when we reduce children to just haphazard gatherings of cells and they're only made human beings when we say we want them, then what happens? What's happening in our culture? We murder 2,000 of them per day. We experiment with them. We sell their parts. When we cease to worship the God who gives them His image, then we reduce them to a commodity. And the same happens to ourselves. The same happens to other, the way we treat other people. I once welcomed a, a man to my church to speak to my, to my church. He was the head of the organization that, that uh, accredits all of the Christian schools in Africa. And the Christian school movement in Africa is is spreading like wildfire and and uh, he was giving us that report and he, he he recalled when he was a teacher that a group of American teachers from a particular public school came over and with a particular curriculum came to teach them a science module and they just brought their textbooks with them and when they got to origin when they got origins the origin of the universe they taught it like they taught it in in the american school they said there was a big bang and then there's the the, the origin of the species was that uh, that uh, simple cell organisms uh, uh, evolved into more complex organisms that that we we uh, evolved from lesser life forms including apes he said among his fellow teachers there was an uprising. And the teachers, public school teachers in Africa, demanded that they stop teaching and rip that section out of the book that they were not going to teach that. That's the kind of teaching, they said, that kept us oppressed. That's the kind of teaching that validated our slavery. Even the public school teachers in Africa were saying, we will choose to, to teach that God created man and woman, and he made them in their image. That is the only teaching that gives dignity to people. Amen. To worship anyone, anything besides the one true God only dehumanizes us. True worship glorifies God and glorifies us. It, it does glorify God. It gives him the honor that is his due. But if we, if we give honor to others, then, then it not only robs him of his glory, it robs us of our glory. C.S. Lewis, in his, um, who was a professor at Oxford in the last century, C.S. Lewis once preached a sermon that's now very famous. It's called The Weight of Glory. And what's remarkable about that sermon is not just the, the discussion he has about the glory of God. It is... What he says is our glory, and it is that God gives glory to us. He says, by making us in his image, 
He has made us creatures that if we could see with real spiritual eyes, if we could see each other the way God sees us, we would be tempted to worship each other. And not only that, he says, he has crafted us in such a way that we become a real ingredient in the divine happiness. That's the way God thinks of you. That's the way God made you. Why would you choose a frog over God? Now notice what Moses does, says to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't like the frogs. Now, as much as they venerated frogs in Egypt, the royal household forbade frogs in the court. They didn't mind other people in, the, in, in, in uh, Egypt playing with frogs, but they didn't want frogs in the court. And no royalty was supposed to touch a frog. So this is quite an invasion for God to cause frogs to crawl on Pharaoh. Who is God, Pharaoh? Who is God? If you're God, tell him to go away. So what does Pharaoh do? He calls his magicians. And what do the magicians do? They create more frogs. They're so innovative. They're so powerful. This is what we do ourselves. This is all they can do. They can only make the situation worse. And so Pharaoh is forced to call out to Moses, God, tell God, not just your God, tell God to take these away from us. And then Moses says something interesting in the original. He says, uh, 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 says to, in verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me. He, he literally says, Moses, he says, Pharaoh, glorify yourself. That is, I'm going to allow you to request, make a request of God, and he will answer it. So you just tell me when you want the frogs gone. And Pharaoh, in his infinite wisdom, says, let's wait 24 hours. Let's do it tomorrow. Everything about this shows the insanity of unbelief. Name the time, Pharaoh. He could say, now. They would be gone. No, let's do it tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow it will be. This is what some people call prayer evangelism. Or we could say prayer apologetics. It's just a little excursus here. This is the way we should be engaging in our world and in our culture, in our families, in our neighborhoods, prayer evangelism, prayer apologetics. Invite your neighbors, unbelievers, to ask you to pray for them. How may I pray for you? Specifically. And if God answers, will you give your life to Him? We should be praying for God to do things that convince people of His truth and that, that really transform our society. I remember realizing this just, uh, just a few years ago. I'm embarrassed to say I had to be taught this by other brothers and sisters in my community about the power of prayer. Where I was ministering, it was a, it was a city that was being held in, in bondage, spiritual bondage, yes, but in, in material and, 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 and bondage as well. And, and there, were, there were groups of people. There were, 
There were white people and African-American people, groups of people who held power that were keeping people in bondage. And I met people in that city who prayed for that bondage to be broken. And I woke up one day, realized five years later, every one of those people that had powerfully kept people in bondage were either dead or in prison or converted. And I asked some of my friends, how do, you, how do you explain that? And they looked at me like I had a nail coming out of my head. And they said, we prayed about it. Moses says, Pharaoh, pray. Just, just make a request. And God will demonstrate his power to liberate and to heal. And God gave, gave Pharaoh, it says, God gave Pharaoh respite. Literally, he gave Pharaoh room. He gave him room to repent and yet he hardened his heart. Well, we need to go on to the next point in verses 8 to 15 that not only do we need to, we must glorify God, and when we glorify God, we experience his beauty and his grace. When we enjoy God, we experience his beauty and his grace as well. This is what Jesus says, just to cut to the chase too. Jesus says, if you if you, give, if you lose yourself for my sake and the gospel's sake, you will find it. Give your life to me, and I'll give it back to you in an infinitely better form. Joyful and with dignity and, and beauty. Well, what's the opposite of that? False worship. Letting anything, anyone come before your devotion to Jesus Christ stinks. Moses prayed, and the frogs croaked. That's a joke. We don't have a jo- time for a joke in the, in the congregational meeting. That's the joke. Moses prayed, and the frogs croaked. The frogs died, and then they put them in heaps and heaps and heaps. Literally, Hebrew says, they put them in heaps and heaps and heaps. And God allowed them to decay in a natural way so that they could remember that stench for a time. He gave Pharaoh room to repent and Pharaoh refused. What's the opposite? The opposite is you give your life to Jesus Christ and He gives you joy. Now, it's not just giddy happiness all the time. We're not preaching health and wealth and prosperity gospel. That's only temporarily uh, a temporary hope. But this is a joy that surpasses life circumstances. This is a joy that is down deep in your heart and so down deep that it is counter to circumstances. It, it explains your peace in the midst of suffering. And that joy is explained for a couple of reasons. It's explained for one, most importantly, that it, it's explained because you have a harmonious relationship with God. This is what Pharaoh could have had. Pharaoh could have given his heart to the Lord and God would have become his father. Pharaoh would have been united to him. His people would have had joy and respite. They would have had an enlarged family. Their land would have prospered. The depth of your joy, even in the midst of suffering, is that no matter who is against you, no matter what life is doing to you, no matter matter your your physical decay or, your, or the bad news you've received, no matter what, this is true. 
God is good and he loves you. No matter what is going on in your life, if Christ is your Savior, this is true. No matter else, what else is going on, this is true. God has made peace with you through Jesus Christ and he can no more unlove you than he can unlove his son. And everything that comes to you only comes through his gracious fingers. And he turns even that which is ugly, even that which is evil, he turns it to the good of conforming you to the image of his son. And that joy is also explained because of the hope that you have. The hope that cannot be that cannot, that, that, that cannot die with this life, the hope that lies beyond this world, the hope of the promise of God that he will someday be the victor over every enemy, the last enemy being death, and he will rule and reign until he has put everything back to the way it is supposed to be and better. That's the explanation of the joy. years ago I was a young man in my church who I had known since he was a little boy. I'd seen him grow up in the church. I'd seen him uh, go to Christian camps. He'd gone to the edge. He had participated in all of the things that our youth do. But as he grew older He decided he wanted to be his own God and that he knew better. He knew better than Christ. He knew better than his pastor. He knew better than his parents. He knew better than his youth leaders. And he explored every pleasure that he could get to. And he wrecked his life. One day he was headed back to college and uh, it, was, it had been a rough weekend. He had pursued what he thought was going to make him happy. He'd hung out with friends who told them how wise they were. And he needed to follow them and he would bring them happiness. But God did an amazing thing in his life. And he texted his dad about it. And this is what he wrote. After you talked to me, Dad, I just felt something different. The whole way home with my friend who was driving, I just felt something. The whole way to my dorm, it was kind of like that feeling when you tear up because you're happy. I had it. I didn't try to stop it. I was so happy. The drive was so many, many O's pretty. And the sky was amazing and I started looking at it and everything I looked at after that was beautiful. Now I realize it was because I just met God for the first time. About 10 minutes after that I just had a feeling I was being called by God through him showing himself to me, making me so happy. So I thought about God and I thought about everything in my life and I gave all this to God who was making me so happy. 
I realized all the things in my life that were distracting me from seeing his awesomeness. And I told him I wanted him instead of all those things. And I begged him to keep me from those things. Right now, right now I'm realizing all that stuff that I do think and say could be awesome because they would be for his purpose to shine his awesomeness so that others can see. I realized that's what I, what I want most. Because God showed me how amazing He is. So I'm just happy to tell you, Dad, we're now brothers in Christ. I've never become a Christian or seen God. I did both of those things today. I've never actually seen or felt God before this, and I never knew what that meant. I'm really excited, Pops. That young man's problems aren't over. He still battles his demons. He battles his addictions. But it's true. Your primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when you glorify Him as God revealed in Jesus Christ, He glorifies you and makes you joyful.